On today's episode of Hungry for Wisdom, Mama Wisdom opens up a can on that dumb little neighbor kid. You get to hear a grown man quote poetry, and I feel sad. How dare you quote to me the words of eternal life? It's episode 14. Turn it up! Welcome to Hungry for Wisdom. This is the podcast for people who want to know what God knows. He hasn't told us everything, but man, he has told us a lot. I'm Dustin, pastor at Grace and Truth. If you want to know what God knows, let's dig in. Episode 14 here is dedicated to grief and trauma chaplaincy. This is over there on the uh, west side of Washington State. Pacific Northwest Trauma and Grief Support, senior community chaplains, and all kinds of good stuff. I got with me here the uh, leader, owner, director, CEO. What, what are you? Uh, what's your title here? Chief Bottle Washer. That, okay. That's yeah. Included. Yeah. yeah, just senior chaplain along with uh, my wife, Cindy. Senior chaplain, yeah. All, all around uh, president of the world, Merle Myers. We'll be talking to him shortly. Nice last name, by the way. Thank you. Do you spell it correctly is I've the question. I've worked on that. Yeah, yeah we do. <laughs> good, good. Right. Go ahead and get up on that microphone for me if you don't mind. But uh, I want you guys to go and check this out. All kinds of stuff as far as grief recovery and, you know, just uh, like healthy processing of some of the the stuff that happens at the bottom of life because if you operate and live in that scar tissue the the damage is very um widespread and sprawling so these guys can help you out with that and i recommend them highly and often but uh first thing we're going to do here is we're going to take a look at a dose of wisdom from proverbs chapter two here we go proverbs 2 verses 11 through 15 Discretion will guard you, understanding will watch over you, to deliver you from the evil, from the way of evil, from the man who speaks perverse things, from those who leave the paths of uprightness, to walk in the ways of darkness, who delight in doing evil, and rejoice in the perversity of evil, whose paths are crooked, and who are devious in their ways. All right, verse 11 is a giant, a giant conditional statement, right? And we got to be careful about this because you guys have heard me on this podcast over and over and over again talking about the same thing, right? Context, context, context. Context is king when you're looking at the Bible. And I don't want you guys opening Proverbs 2, verse 11 and saying, oh, okay, discretion will guard you and understanding will watch over you, full stop. No, this is the second part of a big conditional statement that starts in verse 1. So we took a look at this in one of these previous episodes. Verse 1 says, My son, if you will receive my words and treasure my commandments within you. Okay, so that's a big if, right? So if you will do that, if you will receive the words of Mama Wisdom here in chapter 2, then verse 11, discretion will guard you and understanding will watch over you. This is not a guarantee. There is no promise that discretion is obligated to guard you and understanding is obligated to watch over you. So from verse 1 you read from there, and then you arrive at verses 11 through 15. We usually like to take positive statements in isolation, right? We just grab it and say, that one's for me. And then when there's something negative or there's a rule that we don't want to follow or something, then suddenly we're all about context. It's like, no, it can't be saying that. Let's read the context and try and find a way to wiggle out of this one. Well, context is always important regardless. So all the time, and the context here is that this is the second half of a conditional statement. Now, verse 12 says, that wisdom will deliver you from the way of evil. And then immediately, catch this, guys, it starts talking about not evil actions, but evil people. 
Okay, now this is important because I've introduced to you guys before the idea of the Hebrew parallelism, and that's where you uh, the, the author will state the same thing in two different ways, right? So they can pretty much interpret each other. You can see what they meant by the first statement by comparing it to the second. So in verse 12 here, the way of evil is the same as the man who speaks perverse things. So it's interesting. Mama Wisdom doesn't define an evil life by the, the actions that you commit here so much as by the company that you keep. What you're actually doing is less the focus than who you're hanging around. So look at the description, verse 12, to deliver you from the way of evil, from the man who speaks perverse things. So of course, you know, if you've read the Bible, you know that the, the uprightness and holiness of somebody or the perversity and evil of somebody is going to be found in, in the tongue, right? Your heart always ends up coming out of your mouth. Even if you're a liar and a deceiver and you have smooth speech, at some point it's going to be revealed what's actually in there. So Mama Wisdom goes straight for the diagnostic of the tongue. And then verse 13, from those who leave the paths of uprightness. So they knew the right way and they departed from it. They were in the right way. They were taught you know, various forms of wisdom, whatever that might have been when they were younger, and they just decided, no. There's a big difference between being ignorant and being a fool, right? If you're ignorant, you don't know something. You, you are ignorant of a certain fact or a certain concept or whatever. These guys were on the right path or they had access to it, but they departed from it. So that's the biblical definition of a fool, right? You're stupid on purpose. So it keeps going in verse 13 there, to walk in the ways of darkness, now, of course, this is the opposite of Psalm 119.105, very famous verse, right? Probably written by David, who was the father of Solomon, who wrote Proverbs here, right? He says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Nope, not for these guys. These guys are in darkness and they like it. The word of God has no effect on their decision-making. So if they're influencing your decision-making, then they are what Jesus would call blind guides, right? It's the blind leading the blind, and both of you are going to fall into a pit. The description of these guys continues in verse 14. They delight in doing evil. Now, this is a really helpful diagnostic because Christians can do evil. We can be deceived. We can just do stupid stuff. What we can't do is we can't enjoy evil. We can get a thrill out of it for a little while, but it'll never actually lead to joy. So when you see somebody who like legitimately enjoys evil and seeks it out. The dude is wicked. He's a fool. And if you spend time with him, then Mama Wisdom says you're going to wind up living in the way of evil. Like there's no real scenario where you hang out with a bunch of evil people and wind up being, you know, the, the moral example and the influencer who just turns them all around. Maybe an evangelist could convert a bunch of people, but one good example in the middle of a bunch of bad examples does not uh, does, does not have any power to steer everybody back onto the course of, of rightness, especially, guys, especially when we make that mistake where we say, you know, well, I preach the gospel at all times, and if worse comes to worse, I use words. And then we use that like weird kind of thinking to get around evil people, and then we're shocked when we get drawn off track and deceived or tempted or something like that. It's like it just, it just never works, right? So these guys can, can enjoy evil. You can't if you're a believer. Not for not over the long haul, not for a uh, a sustained period of time, and so if if you rejoice in perversity of evil, which is the second half of verse fourteen, then you are the the wicked one that she's talking about there. So diagnose yourself, diagnose your friends. She goes on in verse fifteen, whose paths are crooked, and who are devious in their ways. Now that deviousness is an important marker. There are um, there are people who are comfortable with like half truths, right? So 2 Corinthians 4.2, 
It says, look, we denounce sneaky and underhanded ways. We openly commend ourselves to every man in the sight of everybody's conscience. You know, and, and we're, not, we're not hiding anything here. Everything that we have is upfront and knowable. That doesn't mean that there's no such thing as private information. It's just, it, we've talked about this in previous episodes. It's the difference between private and secret. Private is fine, but the, that secret stuff, that stuff that you want to bury and not let anybody see, these guys love that. They are comfortable with devious ways. So it's the opposite of Psalm 119, 105. It's the opposite of 2 Corinthians 4, 2. That's how these guys are described. So evil people take you down an evil path. A lot of times it's it's easier to repent of an evil action than it is to drop a bad friend, you know? And so we won't do it. We'll say, well, I, I'm repenting of my evil or I'm changing my ways or something, but we don't change our company. It's the, the effectiveness of that, the long-lasting nature of repentance, it's really going to be limited by the company that you keep. Because, you know, another place we see this, for example, is like with um, with false teachers. So false teachers are these guys that, you know, they say that they're Christians and then they they go after the the weak or the untaught, maybe the baby Christians or something, and they deceive them and they pull them off. And I, man, I tell you what, I, some of the harshest language, actually, I could say that categorically, the harshest language in the Bible is not for the enemies of God. It's actually for the people of God who don't do what God says and then misrepresent him or his message. So if you look in the Old Testament, yeah, the enemies of God have prophecies against them. Definitely. But the harshest language is reserved for the prophets and the shepherds in Israel. You look in the New Testament, it denounces immorality among the godless. Absolutely. But the harshest language is for the false teachers in the church, right? You look at Romans 1, and it talks about the evil of the world. Very clear. You know, Paul pulls no punches. But it has it has zero to compete with in terms of the uh, the amount of emotion that's wrapped up in that, as uh, like with Second Peter two, where Peter just goes off on these false teachers. The whole book of Jude is about false teachers, and frankly, guys, it's vicious because God doesn't like these guys, these sick, you know, misshapen spiritual freaks. I guess we could call them. They're just, they're, they're not right, you know what I mean? And and they deceive people and they devour people, and so they they never they're never going to have to shepherd. The people that they deceive, they can just, you know, they're like drive-by theologians. They can just shoot you and drive off, and then somebody else is going to have to clean up the mess. And so these are the guys that it's talking about here. They delight in deception, right? Some guys make a whole ministry out of it. They're devious in their ways. And so when people follow false teachers, they end up going an evil way. And guys, it is hard to watch. I, I wish we didn't have to see this so often, but we do. So these guys, or, you know, bad friends, bad influencers of any kind, they get your head swimming in something other than God's wisdom, and you end up off the path of God's wisdom, okay? whether it's false teachers or false friends. There's an old saying, or an old poem, I guess you could call it. Be careful of your thoughts, they become your words. Be careful of your words, they become your actions. Be careful of your actions, they become your habits. Be careful of your habits, they become your character. And be careful of your character, it becomes your destiny. And the people that you hang out with, the people whose voices are loudest in your life, they can control all of that, or at least influence it. So Mama Wisdom says, kick the bad influences to the curb and choose life. They cannot live skillfully in the knowledge of God, which is the definition of wisdom that we've laid out, living skillfully in the knowledge of God. They can't do it, so don't let them influence you. Now, if you do live according to wisdom, you get to do all kinds of cool stuff, like uh, start ministries that are going to help a whole lot of people and all kinds of good stuff. So I brought with me today... Uh, a, a servant of the Lord who has done just that. You guys have seen episodes before. Um, if you've 
checked out the uh, Grace and Truth YouTube channel where we've done things like rubbing elbows with the chaplain and so on. So I got uh, the illustrious Merle Myers, who gets his good looks from me, by the way, also, <laughs> also happens to be my father. But um, the, uh, the the ministry that, uh, that, that Merle and Cindy, it's always tough for me, man. It's always tough for me not to say mom and dad. I'm yeah. sorry. A lot of history. Right. It's always... Um, it, so the, the ministry that, that Merle and Cindy do is something that uh, is is needed, and I would send people there whether I had known them beforehand or not. So again, grief and trauma chaplaincy over there on the west side. How you doing, Dad? I'm doing good, and uh, thank you for having me, Elijah. Thank you for setting up. Uh, I just also wanted to throw in that we have on the website free resources uh, that you can download, media free videos. We charge for nothing, yep. and we've got we've got some of the best. Uh, materials for normalizing and validating what you're going through trauma or grief yeah. Yep. yeah and normalizing is a huge deal because when when that that pain of loss hits you i mean in the initial impact it's like you know it always feels like it's the first time anybody's ever been through that right mm-hmm. but it's it's actually a known process and a known quantity even though it's individual for everybody it's there, there are elements of it that are also universal which allows for things like the community to come in and help you because you're not the only person that's ever experienced it. Yeah. And it's always messier than we initially perceive. It's very messy. How how do you mean? Uh, Well, it was, they talked about stages of grief, you know, and that was, that was uh, a myth. And that was from the book uh, on death and dying by Dr. Elizabeth Kubler Ross on death and dying. Uh, It has nothing to do with grief that kind of morphed on the internet. Uh, But you can get uh, hit with just tsunamis of pain and sadness. Six months, nothing, just smaller ones. Then all of a sudden, wham! Out of nowhere, and you think, "What did I? What am I doing wrong?" You know, yeah. but that's normal. It'll come back later when you don't expect it. It yep. doesn't ask your permission, right to, right, to attack you. Yeah, and if so, I understand right, and part of this is just from observation, you know, just going through life with grieving people and stuff. But it, the the stages as they were laid out, those things do actually happen. But the myth is that it happens sequentially. Right. Yep. And then like when people move backwards or like, Oh no, I'm, I'm in an earlier stage. They feel like it's some sort of regression or failure. So mm-hmm. it winds up being this kind of random hodgepodge of reactions to, to the pain. But those, yep. so those are actually categories of thought that we do dip into, but they're not sequential. Am I saying that right? You got it. You nailed it. And uh, once you leave the stage of infancy physically uh, to toddler, you're never going to go back to an infant. Okay. So Yeah. Here, we're going to bounce all over the place. Again, very messy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And very normal. Right. But there is, over the long haul, actual progress that is possible in making, you know, in being able to get to a normal in in life. Yeah. And your grief changes shape, but it's going to be your partner for life. Um, and, And you won't want to not have it. You'll always want those memories and always remember the pain. And you're, you're going to yearn for the person you love, even yep. though you may go on to have other relationships or whatnot. Yeah, yeah. And it may not be a person that you lost, right? There's grief right. over all sorts of stuff. I mean, you told me once about a an exercise that you do with people where um, you have them kind of simulate the loss of old age so that they can sympathize with their, their aging parents or whatever. And you got to write out all the things that you do. You know, I, I drive my car, I throw a ball, and then they have to surrender those things and experience the loss of freedom and the loss yep. of mobility. And each one of those carries a, a, a grief with it. Yeah, the, the top four or five things you cherish, and then all of a sudden take away this one. Yeah. And then you have to wrinkle it up and throw it in the middle of the circle, take away that one. Have the person on the right of you reach over and take one. Yeah. And they crinkle it up. And that's kind of offensive. But that's one loss after another. And that's what the dying people go through. So that's an exercise for understanding the process of the dying and having wow. compassion. Yeah. I've always thought that would be a weird thing to just sit and think like, 
I'm never going to drive a car again. Yeah. You know, that's yeah. it just, and, and it, it must just hit you at some point. Like I didn't realize the last time that I took a plane flight was the last time I was ever going to do it. Yep. Now that's the, that's the new reality. Let's figure that out. Yep. I can't walk with my dog, uh, all sorts of things mm-hmm. one after the other. And they, they come pretty close together too. Yeah. Uh, oftentimes. Wow. All right. Yeah. So here's what, here's what I got for us today. I want to go through some, uh, some examples of grief and mourning and stuff like that in the Bible and then just see what we're observing because we actually see a lot of this, but we don't have, um, we haven't oftentimes thought about the vocabulary to assign to it mm-hmm. to see what's actually going on here. So first off, is there a difference between grief and mourning? Yeah. Grief is the pain that you have inside. It's the, it's the emotional energy okay. uh, resulting from a loss, something you were attached to or someone. Um, and then just the, uh, the pain that you experience and, and the sadness and okay. the anger, the guilt, all sorts of those things. Mourning is the outward expression of that pain. Okay. So being vocal about it, you know, to, to people you trust and just people that are going to listen to you. Okay. So yeah. grief is your noun. That's what you're actually dealing with. And then mourning is the verb and how you go about it. Yep. Got it. Yep. Got it. Okay. Let me, uh, let me do this. I got a Bible here. Always a good thing to have when you're talking about the Bible. Um, let me read, uh, some stuff from first Samuel chapter one. Okay. Now the, um, do I want to go here first? That works. Yeah. Okay. So in 1 Samuel chapter 1, what we're going to see here is uh, is Hannah who can't have a baby. Okay? Now of course in that culture, that was that was a huge deal. I mean there was no there were no, you know, uh, government subsidy programs that you could count on if, you know, when when you were old and things like that. Uh, much like the days in which we live now. Not a mm-hmm. lot that you can count on once you're once you're old. Your kids were not only your security blanket for the later stages of life, yep. but also um, for a woman there was a lot of uh, dignity wrapped up in being a mother, and that dignity was uh, was kind of a social currency that was denied to you if um, you know if you didn't have any any kids. Sort of put you as a second class citizen. Okay, so let's see, verse five. But uh, to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her. So her husband Elkanah, yeah, Elkanah gave a, a double portion to her uh, because he loved her, and because the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb, Hannah's womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. Okay, so there's some kind of mourning process right there. She would not eat and she was weeping. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep and why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? All right, so pause there. This is a basic misunderstanding on the part of her husband, right? He says, all right, so you've got me. You shouldn't need the sons, right? And now he may have been a great husband. It would appear not. He wasn't doing a very good job of protecting his wife from like ridicule. But he's there's a category error here. He's saying, you know, I should make you happy. So 10 sons shouldn't matter to you. And as good of a husband as you may be, you're not a, you're not a kid, Right? That's a whole different area of loss that somebody else doesn't have the ability to fill. So a lot of times we want to fix somebody's mourning. We want to fix their grief by making them happy with something different. Yeah. And at the least, things don't mix. At least you've got me. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Oh, that's the worst. <laughs> somebody loses <laughs> yeah. something. It's like, well, at least it's like, yeah. don't even finish that sentence. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So am I not more to you than 10 sons? Uh, after that, well, let me ask you, how would you describe his, his error there? What was Elkanah doing wrong in that situation? Uh, kind of going farther back, he had more than one wife, and it, that never works out well. It, you know, uh, 
in the uh, in the Old Testament, every story where there's polygamy involved, it ends it ends badly. Yeah, uh, and then that's that's an issue. And then Hannah is a female, like you said, basically a second class citizen, and uh, an error, a major error of the Jewish culture back then was not treating women equally. We're all equal with different roles. Yeah, and which was kind of weird because it was written in the law that you should right. You honor your yep. father and your mother, but culturally, it didn't work out that way. No. No, and they were so apostate. Their religion was apostate. The people, the culture was as well. Uh, So she is really, um, she's canceled. You know, we think we came up with the cancel culture in America. Uh, No, this is, she's been canceled. Wow, Um, yeah. And it's been going on for centuries. And then getting a, a shame assigned to you by society, your husband could divorce you. You could you could burn the matzo balls and you could be divorced yep, and, unilaterally. Yep, out in the street, no no uh, shelter, no protection from a man. And then she was uh, getting ridiculed, not only shame from society, but ridicule within her family. So her grief is getting compounded from a yeah. lot of different angles here. Yeah, so she's uh, carrying a lot of grief. Yeah, yeah, and that that's when things get complicated, and that's why she's suffering so much with complicated grief, mm-hmm. a lot of baggage. And then there's isolation to it because mm-hmm. there's clearly nobody around that understands. The, right. the other wife is is making a joke about her all the time, like relentlessly apparently. Yeah, and the husband doesn't get it. So what, what's where's her community? Right, mm-hmm. exactly. All right. So, yeah, geez, polygamy just messes everything up. That's the point of everything today, listeners. <laughs> yeah. Polygamy messes everything up. Can you imagine Elkanah being like, hey, you, you got me, honey. I'm, I'm your husband. And Hannah's like, oh, I'm sorry. Which, which wife are you talking to? <laughs> That's right. I, I get confused. And we see that in uh, Islamic cultures, too, where old men marry harems. Yeah. And that cheats young men out of having families yep. and, and wives and stuff. It never works out. Never well works at all. out. Yeah. All right. Verse 10. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. All right. So bargaining with God, healthy or unhealthy, what do you think? I mean, Uh, it worked out in this story. I'd go case by case. Uh, Sometimes it's humorous (laughs) with Gideon. Well, that's true. Um, yeah, you just don't want to. You just don't want to come up short if you try and bargain with God. That's well, yeah. my experience. You know, <laughs> just keep your word. Careful what you promise. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, and and also, you know, it's it's not a good control mechanism. I would say here that she was, you know, and this is I'm, I'm going out on a limb a little bit, guys, but it seems to me that she was making a request. She was putting herself underneath God, whereas it's possible to try and negotiate from a position of power with God, which you don't want to do. It's not that's not operating in reality. So. She, uh, she continued to pray before the Lord, and Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. Pastor, fail! She can't get a break. No. <laughs> Eli's a good dude, too. Yeah. He just, he just yeah. whiffed. Yeah, all right. <laughs> Verse 15, but Hannah answered, no, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. That's a good move. That's a good move. That's a great move. And then she also wants to dedicate her child to God. Yeah. I want a child so I can dedicate him to you. So it's not, it's not uh, just selfish. It's not just right. increase me. Right. Yeah. Right. That's cool. All right. 16, do not regard your servant as a worthless woman for all along. I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. And then Eli answered, go in peace, and the God of Israel will grant your petition that you have made to him. 
So Eli changed his tone there once he realized what was going on. His response to her then, being a woman in in grief for lost, I mean, lost plans, lost future, lost hopes and dreams and whatever, how was his response to her? Good, bad, what could he have done? Well, God was behind that because he wasn't just going to go out and say, okay, you're going to have a baby and you know, yeah. go in peace. Uh, I thought that was great. Okay, good. Yeah. Yep, affirming, reassuring, and yeah, he was ready to, to uh, rebuke her but saw nothing to, to tell her to repent of once he got his hands yeah. around the situation. So. Good point. All right, Second Samuel. Let's check that out. Chapter 3. That's 13. Second Samuel 3, verses 33 and 34. Now, the, the context here is... Yeah, there we go. Actually, it says the context here. And the king, David, lamented for Abner, saying, Should Abner die as a fool dies? Your hands were not bound. Your feet were not fettered. As one falls before the wicked, you have fallen. And all the people wept again over him. So Abner here is a guy of of prominence in the society. He was kind of one of the heroes of their culture. And David here weeps in song, right? So it seems that there was some preparation that went into this. I doubt he was freestyling this. He was, you know, this is pretty, pretty um, structured stuff. So the role of, of poetry and music in group mourning, is that, is that an important thing? Because we don't do a whole lot of that. Yeah, it, it really is. And, you know, it can just be some, um, it could be a memorial service. You know, you don't want it to be the comedy hour. Right, you right. want to be able to actually express how you miss the person that uh, that has died. Um, no, I think that's great. And, and we do see that today. Uh, we see them in uh, all, all different cultures as well. Yeah, the, um, uh, the most common song played at funerals now is Amazing Grace. Okay, fair enough. Um, except when it's done at a non-Christian's funeral, it drives me nuts. They're like bagpipes. What's with the bagpipes, man? You know, I, did I tell you about that time? I almost like got into a, a, well, I got into a really (laughs) weird altercation, a verbal one with a, with a bagpipe player at a funeral. Did I tell you about that? No, no. Okay. Well, okay. I guess other people are listening. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. So I'm, I'm out doing this funeral and it's outside. And they wanted bagpipes, and I'm just like, oh, jeez, I hate these things. I really do. <laughs> right. I understand the point of them, like back when you had to announce in Scotland, like, hey, there's war, and you had to, yeah. the sound had to carry across the, you know, the Bad field. Bad news, of device of torture. Yeah, exactly, which is a pretty good description of the sound a bagpipe yep. makes, you know? Yep. And so, like, I get it then, but I'm like, man, like, I'm, I'm a classically trained musician. You, you spent a lot of money putting me through music lessons. You know what I mean? And like, it's all just about being in tune, like tune it or die was our, was our motto. And you can't tune a bagpipe. And I'm just like, why is this still a thing? I don't get it. And so I'm talking to this guy. I heard him warming up and it just makes my, makes my skin crawl. You know, it's like you're choking a duck. It, like, that's yeah. how it sounds to me. So he, uh, he, he stands there talking to me while we're waiting for the family to show up. And I, I wanted to know, cause he wasn't Irish. He wasn't Scottish. He was some dude from like, you know, Wisconsin or something. But he had the kilt and he had the, the you know, the really nice gear. I was like, how did you get into bagpipes anyway? And he goes, well, what do you mean? I said, well, there's a lot of instruments to choose. Why did you pick, you know, the bag? I wanted an answer, but I also didn't know how to be classy about it. He goes, what's wrong with bagpipes? And I'm just like, well, I mean, wrong, maybe nothing, but like, wouldn't you pick one that you can tune? And he says, oh, you can tune these things. You heard me warming up, didn't you? And I said, yeah. He goes, well, that was in tune, wasn't it? And I said, no, <laughs> like there was, yep. there was no other answer other than no. And it got really quiet and he looks at me and because there's like a culture behind the bagpipes, yeah. you know? And so I, I had, I had offended his culture. And so we just stood there silently and I kind of looked over at him and he'd kind of look over at me and grimace and like, okay. And then we went and did the funeral. 
Never got a good answer as to why he picked the bagpipe. So I assume there isn't one. It's like going to a symphony, paying the money, buying the ticket to hear the orchestra tune up, and yeah. then you walk out. And then you leave. Yeah. 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 Are you ever going to get around to the music? Nope. <laughs> so, <laughs> <right>. so anyway... <laughs> Yeah. The okay. So the, the most the most common song is uh, is Amazing Grace. The second most common song at funerals in America is My Way. Oh, Frank Sinatra. Yeah, I did it my way. Right. Yeah. yeah. And I'm like, first off, a lot of times those two things are played in the same funeral, which is totally contradictory. Right. Amazing Grace. God gives me grace. Gives me all of this stuff that I don't deserve and whatever. And then the second song is like a an anthem of personal triumph or something from a dude in a pine box. It's like. Okay, you did it your way. How'd that work out for you? Yeah. Your, your worm food, you know? I don't get it. That's right. You know, the only time I liked the song My Way is when Frank would sing it. Yeah. You know, he was alive. He, he, he did what he wanted. But also, every one of those narcissists on the money pit when they were driving off from the old beat oh. house, they had that song going. That was, a, yeah, yeah, that was a great That's scene. That's what I think of every time I hear that song. You know? <laughs> yeah, now I'm going to go watch that YouTube clip of Tom Hanks <laughs> laughing in the bathtub. bathtub. <laughs> He's like wheezing. All right. So where were we here? Uh, I don't know. I don't either. Okay. So poetry and music in, in group or communal mourning. Yeah. Everybody reading off of the same sheet of music is a good thing, right? It's good for, for people to dwell in unity in the middle of pain. So maybe maybe something that our culture doesn't quite value the way that, to the level that we could that would help people out. Or we pick the wrong anthems. Yeah. You know, you know uh, a great funeral song is um, Vince Gill. Go rest high on that mountain. You heard that okay, one? Okay, yeah. I mean, yeah. now I've heard it way too many times where I don't want to hear it again, but it really is probably one of the better songs ever written. Okay. Yeah. Uh, with Abner, um, kind of looking at that, David did order the morning, and I think being a king, I think he wanted to get Abner's followers on his side yeah. just so they know that um, he wanted them to know that his kingdom was not established by violence. Okay. He kind of wanted a kumbaya. It was a good strategic move, yeah, I thought. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's a fine line between leadership and manipulation sometimes, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. But that, yeah, shrewd, shrewd move. All right, so Jeremiah 31, 15. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. All right, so sometimes people yeah. just refuse to be comforted. Mm-hmm. Well, what's that about? Don't people want to feel better? Uh, you know, they, they could be going down the road of a broken heart like uh, Debbie Reynolds when um, when her daughter died. Explain that story. She just gave up, threw in the towel. Okay. And wh- what was the actress's name? Princess Leah. Carrie Fisher. Carrie Fisher, yeah. Yeah, and, and they just kind of go down that road. Um, my aunt had um, her husband, her first husband was murdered, big spree killing, mm-hmm. uh, the, the first popular spree killing in America. Didn't and they name spree killing after the guy that did that? I think so. Spreewell or something? Yeah, and yeah. then they made the the movie Badlands with Martin, uh, I always say Martin Short, yeah. it was <laughs> Martin Sheen and Sissy Spacek, uh, but um, my uncle was his last victim, and I was named after Merle, Merle okay. Collison. My aunt, after that, in 1977, right after I visited the family to go down to Louisiana and dive commercially, um, three of my cousins were killed in a car wreck. And, and this is in Great Falls area. They're in Montana. That made the papers in Spokane. And that broke her heart, and she died okay. shortly thereafter. Was that the one so, with the train? The train got him or something? No, to make it no across it was, the tracks? they were driving up to ski somewhere oh, in okay. Montana. Yeah. yeah, and that's just the broken heart. There's no way... I don't know if they even want to come out of it. Right. You know, they just. Well, and that's the interesting thing to me is like pain typically 
runs towards something to comfort it, which is where a lot of dysfunction comes from, right? You, mm-hmm. you, you look for the wrong things to bring you comfort, but there are, there is a type of pain that just says, leave me in this pain. Yeah. And it's like, sometimes that can be okay, right? Because they're not done processing stuff, but then sometimes it's unhealthy and it leads to death. So, I mean, when is it okay to just like leave somebody to it when they say, leave me alone? Boy, you kind of have to honor their wishes and free country and all that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Just be available. Yeah. And be prepared. Available. Yeah. Prepared for. And, uh, if they do want to, want to have a trusted listener, if they do want to tell their story over and over again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Uh, many times it's, it's a decade, um, 15 years, 30 years before they really start to come out of it. They want to come out of it. Now what's, what's that all about with dying of a broken heart? I mean, what, cause there is, there is something biologically that happens where people can just give up on life and die. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if they need, you know, if, if it requires that comorbidities be in place or what, but I mean, what, how often does that happen? Is it just a phrase or is that actually a thing that people die of a broken heart? It, it is a thing from what I understand. I'm not a doctor, but I have heard of it. And but yeah, but you and I have both seen the water boy, so we know it's legitimate, right? Yeah, absolutely. She, she died in a broken heart, coach. <laughs> yeah. Or the dehydration. <laughs> yeah. She got the brain pain. <laughs> Super mature over here, both yes. of us. John 11, 31 to 33. So Jesus is this one's this one's funny to me. So Jesus just hears that Lazarus, his good buddy, dies, right? So when the Jews who were with her in the house were consoling her, uh, saw that Mary, uh, she, they saw Mary rise quickly and go out, followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Okay, so right right off the bat, the the religious community shows up and is in her house to comfort her, and the religious leaders, the the Jewish leaders, and so on. This this is a good thing, right? Religious community shows up. To provide comfort. So they were they were going to go and follow her. They figured she was going to the tomb. Verse 32. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. All right. So, so far, it, this isn't exactly bargaining. This is more like um, questioning or it, it's not an accusation. It's very respectful, but it's kind of like a what the heck moment. Like, Jesus, why would you not fix a problem that you could have fixed? Right. So those kinds of questions pop up a lot in grief. They do. They really do. And uh, right. Uh, they're rightly asked and they're wrongly asked, too. Oh, yeah, that's true. Was assigned. You know, uh, it, it's interesting when Jesus was in that scene, uh, you know, they all knew that Jesus could raise the dead. They've seen it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but sometimes people could say, oh, it was just a resuscitation. They just died. Yeah. Lazarus, he was dead for four days. Yeah. You know, what a body does after four days. It's, it's really, really nasty. A hot desert. Yeah. So she was really concerned, but the Jews knew there was resurrection cause it's in the old Testament. Mm-hmm. But I mean, having that, the here and now, so yeah. she was really concerned. Yeah. Yeah. And, and rightfully so. And, and Jesus instigated that situation so that she would hurt like that mm-hmm. so that he could answer the pain. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, yes. I- interesting stuff. So the, like just before that, they said, hey, Jesus, Lazarus is about to die. He's like, all right, let's give it a couple of days, then I'll go. And they're like, no, he's going to die. And Jesus <laughs> right. is like, yes. And I, yeah. you know, I want that to happen because then there can be a resurrection. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And who said he stinketh from the tomb? <laughs> so, yeah. Was, I don't have the King James in my hand. I should. <laughs> yeah. It's much better to read it that way. Yeah. yeah. Um, it, one question I had, you know, uh, Jesus in that, in that verse uh, or uh, chapter, he, he talks about, 
being moved, deeply moved. Yeah. Uh, so what was he deeply moved about? Was it because of all the wailing and people that didn't think they would see him again? Or it, just un- unbelief? The yeah. wailing of the unbeliever. Is that what that was about? No, the, uh, the, the word there for deeply moved is the same word that, um, uh, that they they use for horses that are about to go into battle and they're like, you know, given that kind of sort of sound and they're, they're clawing with their hoof at the dirt, ready to go. Um, it was an internal, um, push towards action. And so okay. he was actually, he was actually angry, but it was kind of, a um, it was the sort of anger or, um, uh, impetus to fight is what it was. And so when it says he was deeply moved, it was, he was deeply moved to action. And okay. so when you look at what's going on there and, and what he says to everybody else around, you compare all of his other words and say, okay, what's going, you trace back what's going on in his emotions here that, that he would be deeply moved. And basically what was going on was he, he was mad, like you said, at the unbelief. It's like, I mean, imagine if I could be so bold as to say, put yourself in Jesus' position for a minute. Boy, here's some grief for you. So he was the one that created the world right? So Colossians 1, Hebrews 1, whatever. When God created the world, it was God the Son, before he was named Jesus, right? He was the active agent in creation who was actually pulling the triggers and making stuff happen. So here's this wonderful creation that he had made, and death was not originally a part of it. That came in as a corruption, and unbelief was not originally a part of it. That came in as a corruption. The separation, the relational separation between man and God was not part of it, that came in as a corruption. And so now he's standing in the middle of this creation, and it's a magnificent creation, and there's all this crying. And it's like, what the heck, you know? Like, this is not what I, this is not my work. This is the work of the devil. And so it was just kind of like a, a big yell. This is not the way that it's supposed to be, which is really cool because then he leads into the resurrection of Lazarus where he's like, and just so everybody knows, I'm undoing this. You know, this is what I'm all about is I'm undoing yeah. this, this nonsense that you're looking at right now. So, yeah, good question because it's it's interesting to get a, a you know a peek into the psychology of Jesus, fully God, fully man, right? Yeah, and and I like the old theologians that said when he uh, looked into the tomb, he said Lazarus, come out. And yeah. some of the old theologians would say if he wouldn't have specified Lazarus, everybody probably <laughs> would have come out. So, but that's what he does and what could, he could have done at that time. Yeah. So, yeah. That was yeah. the old fathers. Yeah. They said that the power of the command of Christ is such that he had to specify. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> else, yeah. He'd have been like, come for, no, not you guys. Just him. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right. So Lamentations 1.1. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow she has become. She who was great among the nations. She who was a princess among the provinces has become a slave. So now this is not mourning over a person, a personal loss, but over Jerusalem or, you know, by extension, Israel, right? Israel, yeah. And you go to Jeremiah, um, these are the prophecies. Here's what's yeah. going to happen. You're going to be ravaged by ba- the Babylonians. Mm-hmm. You know, ravaged. Lamentation, skip forward. Here's what's going on. Yep. So and also written by Jeremiah. Yep. Also by Jeremiah. We see that with Habakkuk too. We see the anticipatory grief uh, of what's going to happen. Being with a, your loved one, uh, yep. lingering illness, you anticipate their death. You have that grief, and then it's a whole new, different type of grief once the death has happened. Lamentations is the whole new type of grief because mm. it's happened. The death has happened. Anticipatory grief. Mm-hmm. That seems like perfect. Like it's perfectly reasonable. And yet it could get really dangerous because you don't know what's going to happen. Right. Right. So like you could grieve something and that could just wind up being worrying and 
Uh, that's something that Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, he flat out says, look, don't do that. Tomorrow's got enough troubles of its own. The troubles of tomorrow will be there when you get there, sufficient for each day or its own troubles. And yet, if you've got a spouse who's you know dying of cancer, it's perfectly reasonable yep. to be in a, a zone of grief. So when is it okay and when is it idolatry to, or, you know, a control issue or whatever to suffer in advance? Um, I think just understanding the pain of losing someone that we are attached to and attachment theory that was developed in Germany. Mm-hmm. Uh, what people don't tell you is it was developed by uh, people that were children of theologians and pastors uh-huh. and it's biblical concept. Yeah. We're very relational. And we, we have to let go little by little and that hurts and that's how we're wired. Right. Um, so yeah, anticipatory grief, letting go little by little is an important human process. And that's feeling the pain. Yeah. That's important to know. Lean into it. You know, every like some, there's a time to just lean into it and say, I'm just going to experience this, not run from it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's when doctors say, no, I got another thing we can try, or there's an experiment that's going on here or mm-hmm. there. Uh, they don't want to throw in the towel cause they're trained to fix things. Uh, families that don't want to send their people to hospice their loved ones they think it's throwing in the towel heck we've seen hospice graduates we worked yeah. we volunteered with them that they came off hospice but uh yeah they just want they, they always think they can do something that you know sure and we're fixers by nature yeah, and there's nothing there's nothing more worth applying that that part of our nature to than preserving human life so it's reasonable but yeah there's a time to there's a time to seek and a time to give up is lost right yeah yeah can I go back? Yeah. Circle back on one you can thing. Do whatever you want. You are a guest of honor. Well, thank you, sir. Um, we look at uh, Jeremiah and we look at the Old Testament prophets, and those guys were pretty rough customers. Yeah. You know, they, they were, they would tell it like it is. So you're going to saw me in half. I don't care. God's yeah. going to flatten you. you. You know, yep. He's telling you right now. So they, they had the guts to, to do that. Jeremiah was no exception. Um, and then you have, King David and, and Habakkuk, especially all these guys would openly mourn as tough as they were. David, yeah. man of war. Uh, and then, um, he's writing songs about it. Yeah. Mm. Psalm six, six slow ones. I am weary with my moaning. Every night I fled my bed with tears. I drench, drench my couch with my weeping. That's, that's a tough guy. Yeah. Being able to mourn and express his pain to God mm-hmm. and to everybody. Cause it's in the Psalms. Yeah. And he, pu- he publishes it publicly. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So that's the balance. You can you can be the, the solid biblical have biblical manhood, but still mourn openly. Yep. And you should. Well you and should. that so that, that leads into then um I guess that combined with giving up is lost, that leads into the last uh, example that I've got here is uh Matthew twenty three, um thirty seven to thirty nine. So Jesus is lamenting like Jeremiah over Jerusalem. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered you, uh, gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So Jesus there is giving up as um, uh, lost, essentially. He's, not that God is out of control of something, but it's a weird thing to hear God in the flesh say, I tried. Right. Yep. And and they were unwilling. And and he, you know, so he's taking a moment to grieve over the fact that they would not go along with his plan and then say, okay, now that part of the plan is over. Now it's judgment. Yeah. Right? And he tried without um, forcing. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, there were there were some guys that he just, you know, healed right off the bat, which is different than forcing them. But, you know, at the same time, the, the guy by the pool at Bethesda, you know, the, the woman at the well, for example, she didn't he, he didn't say, do you want me to reveal myself to you as God in the flesh? Or he just did it. And then, you know, people would do what they were going to do with it. Mm-hmm. Right. And not everybody. I mean, God is willing that all should come to repentance. Not any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And they don't. Now, he's perfectly in control of everything. And yet there are times where he just laments over the state of things. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's, that's really his perfect righteousness and just honoring us to be accountable for what we decide, either yeah. face him as, as our uh, savior or judge. Yeah. And, and that's our choice. And he does have an emotional attachment to our decision. He does. Right. And a, and a reaction to it. Yeah. Yeah. He's not some robot that you, you know, would you like to hit A or B, saved or not saved? And then just think, thank you for your input. And then he, you know, wanders off. He cares. Yeah. He doesn't. Mm-hmm. Most of the people he healed, you know, John said, you know, to write everything down that Jesus did. It, yeah. Every book in the, in the world couldn't contain it. The whole world couldn't contain the yeah. writings. It would be almost as big as our tax code. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, um, I think most of the people, I'm sure most of the people he healed did not become believers. Mm-hmm. They did, a lot of them didn't even say thank you. They just yeah. they just moved on. And a lot of them were in the crowd screaming, crucify him, give us Barabbas. Yep. Yeah, and that's kind of the common grace that God has for everybody. Jesus healed everybody. And like yeah. with our uh, chaplaincy ministry, we, we work with Christians, non-Christians, Buddhists, everybody yeah. as common grace like, like right. Christ did. These people are made in the image of God and they matter. You don't have to affirm untrue information to care about somebody because they matter. Yeah. 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 I would like Dustin for you to uh, kind of explain Uh the suffering of Jesus, the garden of Gethsemane before Mm -hmm. the crucifixion when he prayed and uh, just the psychological, the emotional trauma he was going through. Could you explain that? And could you explain the kid Ron Brooke leading up to to the pop quiz, just just to show, explain to them just to show that he went through this as well and more. Yeah, so Hebrews 2, Hebrews 4, you know, a lot of these areas, they they make claims that Jesus has been everywhere that we have been. Maybe not in every exact situation, but every category of temptation or suffering that we've been through, he's been through it to the extreme. And so there's nowhere that we're going to go in life that Jesus has not already been, which is a cool thing because that means that when he demands faithfulness out of us, God has already received the faithful, the human faithfulness that he requires. And when we fail in these areas, the fact that Christ is our righteousness and Christ is our perfection, it actually took because he practically went through these situations and dominated even when we don't. Also, when we are going through these situations, we have an understanding high priest, right? We've got somebody who can sympathize with us because he's been through all this. So these are a couple of great examples. In the Garden of Gethsemane, right before the cross, he tells his, uh, his disciples, look, you go over there and pray, stay watchful, because he knew that some guys were coming to arrest him because Judas went all Judas on him and <laughs> sold him out. So he says, you go over there and pray and be watchful. I'm going to come over here and pray. I know I'm going to the cross. I got a few minutes to talk to my father. I'm going to do that. And so we have a transcript of that prayer in John 17, and it's incredible. And so while he's praying, um, I don't know if it's a transcript or a summary, but anyway, it's it's at least part of what he said. So um, while he's praying, it says in, uh, I think... Oh boy, I don't want to misquote the the passage. I think it's Luke 22, like 44 or something. Anyway, his, his anguish was so deep that he was sweating as though drops of blood. So there was some kind of, you know, and I've heard this explained before, but I don't know what it is. There's some kind of physiological 
stress response where you can actually bleed from your pores because of a great anguish. So here we see the crossover between the emotional, the physical, the spiritual, all wrapped into one, and that's something that we go through, right? So when we're when we're sad, we're also tired. It's draining to be in grief. You want to sleep all the time. That leads to depression. That leads to our cognitive function being, you know, a little bit inhibited. You can't hold a conversation the same way. And then oftentimes prayer is harder. The The Bible reading doesn't seem to be quite so vibrant and fruitful. So the physical, the mental, and the spiritual are all interconnected. And he was under stress in all of these areas because of what he was about to go through on the cross. And you know, the, the, he was losing his friends and these relationships and the people he came to save were about to call for his murder and the justice system was going to break down and three forms of justice and, you know, all of this stuff. I mean, it was as bad as it could possibly get. And so his anguish was extreme and he didn't run from it. And he actually enters into not a bargain, but a request with the father where he says, can we do this? this can we do this some other way? Right. He says, I'll, I'll do whatever you want. Not my will be done, but your will be done. But if there's another way to accomplish redemption, let's do that. And then God the Father said, "No, we're going to, you know, do the we're going to work the plan from the beginning of creation." And Jesus went right along with it uh, submissively because that's what he did. So, he he prays, he has the anguish. By the way, in his anguish, we see in John 17 that he spent most of the time praying not for himself, but for us. So, you know, that's how much Jesus loves you. There you go. And so then Judas comes you know, betrays Jesus with a kiss. He says, hey, the guy that I kiss on the cheek, that's Jesus. So there's that whole tragic scene where, you know, a, a sign of friendship actually is a betrayal. Um, all of these really kind of roxious events happen where Peter chops off some dude's ear and then Jesus heals him and stuff. It's a very turbulent few minutes. But then they arrest Jesus. He says, I'll go peacefully. And they walk him to be, uh, they walk him to be tried, right? To put him on what, what ended up being an illegal trial. And, um, he goes with them peacefully, but what we know about the geography of that area, and check this out. This is what, what Merle's referring to here. He was on the Mount of Olives. That's where the Garden of Gethsemane was. And then they were going to the area where the temple is. Eventually, that's where he would you know kind of end up and then take his cross out of there. And those are both on a hill. Now, between those hills is a ravine. And at that time of year, what they were doing was celebrating these feasts where a lot of sacrifices were happening in the temple. And so the temple... Uh, in the temple, they would slaughter all of these animals and there was a drain that would run out into that ravine. And that's, that's in what we call the Kidron Valley. And so there was the Kidron Brook, which was the, the um, little trickling river of blood that ran out from all those sacrifices that were happening in the temple. And so if you look at where Jesus was in Gethsemane and where he was going, uh, you know, in Jerusalem, then you realize he would have had to step right over the Kidron Brook. All that sacrificial blood and entrails. Yeah. And so this is the Lamb of God, and he's looking at all of these sacrifices saying, okay, I'm about to suffer more than every lamb that has ever suffered for human sin, and it's all coming down on me. And so he had to, like, he had to confront that physically. And I think I might have gotten that backwards where I think he, we, we think he probably stepped over the Kidron Brook on the way to the Mount of Olives. They might have walked him around the top of it on the way back. But either way, he, um, uh, yeah, I mean, th- there, was a, a, there was a visual and a, a, a sensual reminder. I mean, you can smell that. That's gross, you know? And he was very familiar with it, having grown up in Jewish um, a Jewish culture, where he had done that a whole bunch himself. So yeah, to step over the sacrificial blood that he was about to go and fulfill, um, he, he confronted absolutely everything for us, with his eyes wide open. And he did so with grief, and he, he held, you know? Thank you. Is that where you wanted me to go with that? Yeah. Was, okay. 
yeah. What yeah. what a visual! Just yeah. you know, to be in his in his sandals and to step over that and know yeah. that I'm my work on the cross is going to be ending all this sacrifice. Yep, it can be finished for good. This whole thing's about over here. Yeah. I, you know, I'm going to go and do that. Yeah. So a question that I had for you is, how much should we guide the grief process? Right, because there's a sense in which when somebody's mourning, whatever whatever they feel like they need to do is probably what they need to do. Right. Mm-hmm. If they need to sleep, if they need to be grumpy, if they need to get to work, if they need to not work for a while, there's there's a time to just roll with it. Mm-hmm. But then there's a time to kind of, you know, walk somebody through it. So how much are we supposed to guide this stuff? We tend to let uh the people's grief take the lead. We definitely want them to know that this is the best option. It takes the lead. So it's going to uh slam you with, you know, emotional pain, sadness. Um and then it's going to kind of be processed. You know, those tears you cry, you, you'll never cry again. Yeah. That's being processed. But there's plenty more where those came from to be processed later. And then all of a sudden the grief will depart, and then you're back in the restoration. I've, i I got to pay some bills. i got to get some kids to the school. So you let people, in, encourage them to, to let the grief take the lead. Okay. All right. Yeah. So the, the, so guiding somebody through the process then takes more the form of like giving them permission to do what they know they need to do. Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. So is there a time to be done mourning? Right. Because like you, there's a time where you got to move on as in practice, like you're saying, even if you can't move on in your mind yet, cause you never completely will. But I'm thinking about, um, second Samuel 12 where mm-hmm. David's baby dies and then he's just done grieving and he makes this mm-hmm. decision like, okay, I'll see him again in heaven. I'm going to get back to being king. Mm-hmm. So is there a time to just be done? Because we all know those people and some of us have been those people that, you know, the, the morning has gone on longer than people think that it should. Mm-hmm. Right. Who at some point, somebody's going to be right about that. So how do you know? Um, it takes as long as it takes. So it can be weeks, months, years. Okay. And it really depends on the relationship that you had with the person. Even if it was a not-so-loved one, uh, there's still pain there because they're no longer there to let you down one more time. Mm. It's, an, it's another change. Yeah, things are never going to be the same as they were. Yeah, and, all that. and, yeah. and when David, his, his uh, infant son died, newborn son, uh, you know, that was very unique. Everyone's grief is unique, mm-hmm. but this one was really unique uh, because the son died, and then all of a sudden, there's nothing I can do. David knew he was going to see his son again because he said, um, he will not come to me. I will go to him. Mm-hmm. And then on the inordinate side of mourning, we can, we can look at David again. Um, his son Absalom tried to kill him. Uh, he's just a terrible son. And, yeah, and that's not cool. That, is, that no, is definitively not cool. No, and David was a, really a bad father. I mean, yeah. come on. You know, you have a son, Absalom, murders another son who raped a sister and, you know, all this stuff. That, yeah, that's and David happening. just checked out. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah, he had his strong points. Being a father was not one of them. And again, he was a polygamist and yep. he had all that other stuff going on. But with Absalom, he goes... After Absalom died, he said, Absalom, my son, Absalom, Absalom. Uh, he was probably carrying a lot of guilt for being a, a lousy father. Yep. And uh, also, he knew that he wasn't going to see Absalom again because mm. Absalom was evil. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So then that morning, that I would say was inordinate morning. He, he never really admitted that he was a bad father. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. So there, so there does exist somewhere a boundary where grief is not healthy. Right. Yep. And and that's like I'm I'm trying to find that with you because 
it's it does exist and we all know that like and like sometimes it takes the form of people that are melodramatic and they they like to be the ones that are publicly suffering and get the pats on the back and whatever and sometimes you just want to look at somebody and say you know knock it off like you're, you're really wearing out your your welcome in people's hearts because you're manipulating people now to get more of what you want right but you never want to say it and, <laughs> right and half the time the person that does say it is wrong about it because it's like no this is what this person needs but what are the boundaries on grief or, or the mourning process i mean is it is it when it starts to hurt the people around you yeah it's when it really starts to hurt yourself and if david was stuck in that mode with, with absalom you know, for the rest of his life, he he would be in that mold where you're comfortable with the pain that you know. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And, and we see that one out of every three dozen or so people. Yeah. They, they don't want help. They don't. You know, a lot of times it'll be a decade. Then they'll start to process it. Some of them will spend the rest of their lives there. Okay. So, what about people in mourning that uh, that do actually wind up hurting the people around them? You know, maybe they get vicious or they get manipulative or they think, you know, whatever I, whatever I do is going to be right because after all I'm hurting, you know, yeah. and then they wind up devouring their, you know, their, uh, their, their kids, emotional well being or something like that. I mean, there's, there's a, there's a time to come in and say, Hey, you know what? Let's, let's go over here instead. Let's do this instead. We can't be doing that, you know, yeah. but it's hard to correct a morning person. So when do you know? It to? is. Well, you know, we teach the, the grievers to set boundaries in place. You know, don't let the, the wrong people that are going to say the wrong things close enough to push those buttons on your chest. Yeah. People around that kind of mourner, they need to put boundaries in place too. And just okay. say, I'll be here. Well, and honestly, I mean, boundaries are safety, right? And, yeah. and when somebody who is, whose whole life has just been rocked, through a loss or some kind of, you know, painful event, uh, a grief event, they, when they run up against a boundary that represents, uh, I mean, sometimes that can represent safety for somebody and say, okay, I know, I know the parameters here. I can't find the edges anywhere else in life right now, but here I know where I stand with these people. And if that's done in love, that can sparingly and on probably very rare occasions be the best thing to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. There, there have been times where you know, just walking through difficult situations with people, you got to, you know, I've, I've had to say things like, Hey, you, you really can't talk to your wife like that. You know, let's try that again or something. Yeah. And that actually ends up it, the couple of times I've had to do that. It ended up sort of snapping them into a different part of their brain where they actually had to function. And that was good for them, you yeah. know, which is different than, you know, just punching a dude in the face and be like, don't you ever. Cause they're not really in control of themselves a lot of times. Right. right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So grief in the Bible, mourning in the Bible, there's a lot of it. And it's not labeled with our modern day vernacular labels for this, right? But if somebody is in the middle of, let's poetically say, in the throes of of grief, right? Somebody's in the throes of grief, and they pick up their Bible. Um, let's let's leave them with this: where where should they go, and what should they understand when they read their Bible? Pastorally, I'll say this: Don't go to Job looking for answers to your suffering. Yeah. Okay, bad move. <laughs> yeah, because the the book of Job is not about suffering; it's about how we see God in the middle of suffering, and it's not there to give you answers. It's there to give you um, divine perspective, which is not what we have when we're suffering. We have a, a very emotion filled human perspective, and that's okay. So Job serves a different function than that. So if somebody, if, if there's a Christian who is suffering for something, just wants to go take comfort in their Bible. What do they look for? Where do they go? And what should they know before they open the thing? What do you think? Um, boy, there's so much bend to fit with people trying to fix other people with the scriptures, you know, yeah. trying to drop them in a way that it, it, it doesn't really mean that. You know, I like to just, it helps to empathize with them by sharing 
how people in the Bible have suffered. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, give, Paul, give them some biblical community. Yeah. yeah, Paul. You know, don't don't try to fix it, and then because then they could just get mad at God and never come back to church if mm-hmm. they're not already mad at God. Yep. Yeah. So this is a journey. It's the wilderness. You're in the wilderness. Here's people that have suffered too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Something that I've told people. Now we'll we'll do this live. Okay. We'll do it live. So if uh, if, <laughs> if um. If, if I'm wrong to have said this to people, you can correct me in front of our entire podcast subscription audience, okay? So I've told people before as, as you know, just one thing to do when they're reading their Bible, um, just read through the Psalms and a lot of stuff will not apply to your situation, but you'll find gems that will. Mm-hmm. And so look for those and hang on to them. Good advice or bad advice? Good advice. Okay, good. Yeah. I have been affirmed here today, so I'm, yep. you know, I'm in a good mood. Yeah, no, you're going to be taking care of me someday, so I'm going to be very docile <laughs> here. Yeah, so. yeah. All right, good. Well, listen, uh, this is not the first one we've done of these. It will not be the last one, I'm sure. But uh, go check out Grief and Trauma Chaplaincy, guys. And they're they're available, you know, for people that don't live on the west side of Washington State also. There's a lot of, you know, electronic ministry that happens in various ways. So check out the website, which is what? Grief and trauma chaplaincy.com. Dot com. There you go, all guys. All free downloads, all free resources. Yeah, and remember, oh, no, you got something else there? Yeah, next time, can we talk about, uh, we've both been approached by people that have lost children, miscarriage, yes. uh, later on abortion, where it, it catches yep. up with them. I specifically did not put that one on the list, because that's a whole episode in itself okay, right there. Okay, good, yeah. good. Is, is, my, is my child in heaven? And we got some really good news about that biblically. Yep. So, yep, yeah. you bet. So next time we uh, get you over the mountains here, we'll go ahead and you know set up the microphones and we'll do that. In the meantime, guys, the world is a messed up place and we suffer for it, but we have a gospel that is perfectly suited to fix it. So have that nimble on your lips and let us know if we can help or if you need any more information about anything that you heard today. And until then, go tell somebody about Jesus. Welcome to Hungry for Wisdom. This is the podcast for people who want to know what God knows. He hasn't told us everything, but man, he has told us a lot. I did the wrong outro. I did the intro as the outro. So let's try that again, guys. The world is a messy place. We have a gospel perfectly suited to fix it. Okay, go tell somebody about Jesus. Bye! Hungry for Wisdom is a ministry of grace and truth community in West Richland, Washington. You can find out more about us on our app, social media, or at graceandtruthcommunity.com. We love him because he first loved us.